Welcome to the weekly teaching podcast of the chapel at Pasadena. Our desire is to reflect the grace and truth of Jesus Christ to Los Angeles and the world, and one way we do this is by sharing God's word through our weekly sermons. Here is today's message. Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus Christ, the one whom you raised from the dead, the one in whom all our hopes are placed, the king of this world, the king of the world to come. Lord, we have gathered in his name to worship you. We have gathered as one body. And Now, Lord, would you address us? Would you speak to us? Would you give us listening ears, open hearts? Would you send your spirit to make your word alive to every heart here? They would be open to being challenged, being changed. God, I do not want to leave this place untransformed by encountering your word. Lord, unless you speak, This is just a fancy speech. Unless you are at work, all of this is in vain. So we request in the name of Jesus, be present with us today, speak to us. We pray for our brothers and sisters all over the world, wherever the gospel is being preached, would you go forth with power, that the name of Jesus may be exalted in this world, that it may go to new places, that people who have have not heard would hear, and believe that the day may be hastened when we look up on the clouds and see that you have returned for your people. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, my, my wife and I recently have been getting into K-dramas. If you don't know what those, that K stands for Korean. If you don't know what those are, uh, go on Netflix, type in K-drama. And there will be dozens of options for you. I mean, there, there are literally hundreds of these things. Uh, you could spend the next five years of your life just watching K-dramas on Netflix. Uh, I don't have quite the appetite for these that my wife does. But I, I do enjoy uh, watching them. Uh, but, uh, you know, you're watching it in, in this foreign language and it, it's uh, got the subtitles on it. I don't speak Korean. Uh, and every now and then I, I just feel like I'm, I'm missing something. Something's getting lost in translation. Something will happen, and a character will react in a certain way, and I won't understand why. It, it won't make sense to me. Why did they react that way? Uh, well, I, I was talking to one of my uh, friends who um, is from South Korea, uh, and we were talking about some of the dynamics in the Korean language that underlie you know, some of the... It doesn't really translate. You can't really translate it. Uh, and what she told me was that in, in Korean, um, the speaker and the listener are always aware of the hierarchy that exists between them. So uh, sort of in, embedded into the, the grammar and syntax of the language, there's uh, markers that indicate the posture that the speaker has towards uh, the person that he or she is addressing. Uh, and so if as these sort of markers shift, there's like relational dynamics that are being revealed in the language itself that you just simply cannot translate it. Uh, and, and so sometimes a character will, will, will like shift the language that they're using to indicate a change in posture. And it's very significant. Uh, and everyone that's watching it that speaks Korean is like, oh, something happened there. Uh, but if you're just watching with subtitles, 
you have no idea what's going on. Well, uh, I think um, uh, I, I've noticed a similar uh, dynamic in, in Russian. As you guys know, my, my, my wife here, uh, she's Russian. She speaks Russian. She grew up in Russia. Uh, and in Russia, uh, names have this uh, sort of, in, uh, it, it, they can be used as an indicator of the intimacy that exists between uh, the two people. Uh, so uh, there's different levels of formality that's sort of systematized into Russian names. Uh, so, for example, when you when you when you just meet somebody, if there's a if there's a formal formal sort of hierarchical relationship between you, you would address them by their full first name and then their middle name. So, uh, for example, my wife, her name is uh, Tatiana. That's her full first name, Tatiana Vladimirovna. That's what I would I, you know if it was a formal relationship between us, and I didn't know her. That's how I would address her. Uh, and, but then there's a, a sort of name of acquaintance. So when you, when you know somebody, then you, you shorten the name down in a, in a characteristic way. So uh, Tatiana becomes Tanya. So usually in, in just a, in informal relationships, if you, if you introduce yourself to somebody uh, in, in, on the level of acquaintance or friendship, that's the name you would use, Tanya. And if, if I say to her, Tatiana, it, it, it's like distancing. Even though I think that name Tatiana is very beautiful. But it, it, you know, for her, it, it means something different if I, if I use that name Tatiana. And then there's a, a, another, still another level of intimacy in, in the names uh, if you are uh, on the level of a family relationship or relationship between a husband and wife, then you can uh, use these different forms of the name that, that signal that sort of intimacy. So you can call her Tanusha. Now, no one else here can call her that, all right? <laughs> it's my name for her. <laughs> I'm just kidding. If, you, if, you, uh, it, if you're very, very um, close friends, you might, you might use that sort of name. So now you know how to read these. Uh, if you ever read like Dostoevsky or Tolstoy, you're probably confused by all the different names that are for these characters that exist there. Well, that helps you understand it a little bit. It's these levels of formality and informality. Well, why am I talking about this? Well, if you notice, names are important things. Important in the text that we read here. Names as a signal, names as a, a, a revelation. God is making his name known to his people, and it, it bears a significance. Uh, it, it, that, that we need to understand if we're going to understand not just our text today, but really the whole book of Exodus. Now, a couple of weeks ago, I said that the, the, the climax of the narrative of Exodus is in Exodus 19. That's true. But I think the, the, the hinge of this book, the heart of it, is laid out in this passage. and has to do with God's making his name known. In English, humans, right, our names are, are given to us by other people. Who determines what God's name is? What does it even mean that God has a name? <clears throat> That's what we're going to look at today. So there are three things we need, to, we need to, to do in this text. By the way, this is how you're supposed to preach the, the three-point message probably notice I almost never do that. Uh, but 
The text really lends itself well to that. So uh, we're going to talk about three things this week. The first thing we're going to talk about is God's revelation of himself and his name. Second thing we're going to talk about is that God reveals his intention, what he is going to do. And then God reveals how he will do it. How he will do it. All right, those are the three things we're going to look at this week. <clears throat> Uh, so before we, we, before we dive into those, though, we need to kind of set the stage a little bit. We need to look at the setting and ask ourselves a question. Who is the hero of our narrative? <clears throat> uh, if you haven't been here, we're, you know, we're just a few chapters into Exodus. What came right before this uh, was this, the narrative of, Exodus, of, of Moses' birth, uh, his adoption into the Egyptian court, his early education, the preparation that he underwent for serving in the Egyptian hierarchy, in, the, in their administration of the Egyptian empire. Then his rejection of that, his uh, initial attempt to liberate his people through violence, which failed, leading to him fleeing from Egypt and going into what he imagined was a pretty comfortable retirement, marrying a local girl uh, and becoming a sheep herder for his uh, father-in-law. So he's like a, you know, taking care of his father-in-law's sheep. That's like Moses' whole thing now. He used to be, the, you know, he's one of the most educated people on the planet at this time, prepared to be a high official in Egypt, and now he's tending to sheep. Um, now, if you know that the climate of this uh, region, it was a very arid climate, uh, not a lot of rain. Uh, so if you were grazing your animals, you often had to travel uh, large distances, moving from place to place, so uh, the, the animals didn't consume all the food in that place, all the, all the edible you know, plants. Uh, it's actually very similar to uh, our climate out here in the Southwest. Uh, if you know about like uh, cattle grazing, that there's vast amounts of land in the U.S. is devoted just to cattle grazing. If you ever look at a, a map that, I should have bought a map, huh? <laughs> if you ever look at a map that shows just how much land um, is devoted simply to grazing cattle in the United States, it will shock you. It's more land than actually people live in. It's just for cattle to graze in. So it requires like a, a vast amount of territory. Uh, so Moses is, has, has taken his sheep and he's very far away from home right now. And he, is, he has wandered to this place called Horeb, where there is the mountain of the Lord, the mountain that we'll later, uh, is later called Mount Sinai. Uh, now, this is a very familiar story. Um, this, this part of the story, um, again, the Prince of Egypt, Ten Commandments, etc. You know, Moses' encounter with the burning bush. You're, I'm sure you're familiar with it if you even have any passing uh, uh, familiarity with the Bible. Uh, he encounters this, uh, this uh, site, uh, and he uh, is given a, like sort of a task by God. He's given a, a role and an assignment. <clears throat> Now, superficially, at least, this has uh, some similarity to a, a sort of hero's mythic journey. You know, we're gonna, we've talked about that off and on as we've gone through this series, uh, but uh, Moses was highly educated, would have known all of the stories of mythic heroes that existed. And Moses is the one writing this. Uh, and, and so in, in, in some ways, there's like a, this... Uh, superficial familiarity, but Moses is undercutting it. He's subverting it at the same time. You have the story of the hero. He's favored by the gods. He's drawn into destiny. 
sort of given this great task to do, and then by it, he sort of ascends into Godhead by the accomplishment of the task given him by the gods. That's the, the, the mythic hero's story in the ancient Near East. Some superficial familiarity to that, but if you actually read the story, as we did, if you paid attention to it while you were sitting here, you'll notice Moses is kind of the worst in this story. Moses is annoying in this story. Moses, you almost feel like a, a secondhand embarrassment for Moses as you read this story. I mean, he is pathetic in it. It's sort of the, the opposite of what you expect. Like, you know, the first time Moses tries to get out of this, it's, it's like, kind of, oh, he's being humble, you know. But like the fourth or fifth time, you're just embarrassed for him. Uh, historians um, will, will talk about something called, uh, it, when, they're, when they're trying to judge whether a story uh, from the past is accurate, whether, whether it actually happened or not, one of the tests they use is something called the criterion of embarrassment. And what that means is that if you were making up a story about yourself or about someone that you revered, you would be very unlikely to make up, to invent embarrassing things for that. If you, were, if you were creating a story out of nothing, you would be unlikely to write stuff that embarrasses you. That's one of the, one of the sort of tests for, for whether uh, something is uh, reliable, whether, or whether a story is reliable or not. Uh, so, yeah, Mo Moses is not the hero of the story. Despite what you see in the way this story is portrayed often, God is the hero of what happens. All right, so let's talk about the three things. First of all, there is uh, God's revelation of himself and his name. Now, there are three ways that God can reveal himself. Okay? We believe, uh, Scripture teaches us, that God is so uh, infinitely above us, so infinitely removed from us, that we who are his creatures could never know anything about him. We cannot like escape the world to go and find God and, and discover him on our own. The only way we can know God, because of the infinite remove that he, that he lives and exists in, is for him to come to us and make himself known to us. And there are three ways that God can do that. First of all, God can do that by uh, coming and speaking, describing himself, uh, telling us things about himself. Another way is that God can uh, use visual images to represent himself. He can, he can appear utilizing a, a visual, sort of visual metaphor. Uh, and then the third way, and this is, this is very significant in, in ancient cultures, is that God can give himself a name. That name is, is a mark of self-identity. It's, it's a self-disclosure. <clears throat> so we see here in this text, the, first of all, a visual representation of the presence of God. Scholars call this, um, this is like the you know, kind of theological word for it, it's a theophany. God appears. <clears throat> this is not God's actual presence, but it is a visual representation of his presence. He is, he is uh, communicating things about himself by the way that he chooses to appear to his people. What we actually read is this. It says, And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in, the, in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. A flame of fire 
localized in a sort of shrub or a small tree. It's, it's, the fire appears there so that the bush appears to be on fire, yet it is not actually burning the bush. So it's localized there, but it's not consuming the bush. Now, this is a very common way. If you look at uh, the various theophanies where, where God uh, appears in some way to his people over the course of the Old and New Testament, there, there, there is this, very, this is kind of the standard way that God appears, with light and fire. Think of uh, Paul on the road to Damascus. A bright light appears so bright that everyone is blinded. Think of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. When God shows up in judgment, fire rains down. Think of Acts 2. When the Spirit descends on the early church, it descends as tongues of fire. Light can both dazzle and blind, but it also dispels darkness, guides us and comforts us. Light entering in the world, that's how it's, when, when Jesus enters the world, it said that light has come into the world. Fire can consume. Fire is an agent of judgment, but it is also an agent of purification. So God, God is communicating what his presence is like. Light and fire. Dangerous, yet good. <clears throat> now what about angel of the Lord? Well, I don't want you to be confused by this, this phrase here. And, uh, angel in, in, in Hebrew is uh, a sort of generic word for messenger. So it literally just means messenger. So an, an angel can be referring to a uh, distinct class of spiritual beings that God uses uh, as servants, both in the Old and New Testament. But angel can also mean simply just a, a messenger of the Lord. And this, this specific phrase, angel of the Lord, when you see it, it's almost always identical with God himself. So when the angel Lord speaks, he speaks as God speaking. So he doesn't say the Lord said this. He says, I say this. So the angel Lord is speaking, but it is God who is speaking. The angel is identical with God himself. He is God's representation of himself. He is God speaking. A lot of uh, theologians, very common to uh, associate the angel of the Lord with uh, a pre-incarnate uh, Jesus Christ. The second person of the Trinity showing up in, 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 in creation and speaking. All right, so that's, that's the, the visual element of this, the theophany. But God reveals himself by using a name. And we have to talk about the names of Scripture because it's something that is difficult to understand if you're just reading a translated version of the Old Testament because of translation decisions that have been made. I, I don't really understand how exactly we ended up in this place, but it, nonetheless, uh, it, our translations obscure the different names that are used for God, in particular in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. There are two primary names for God in those first five books. The first one is Elohim, uh, and we, we, we see that translated in our translations as God. <clears throat> Elohim is, uh, often appears with modifiers. So uh, 
It can be either Elohim or El. El or Elohim. Uh, and then it sometimes has modifiers like uh, El Shaddai, which means God most powerful, God Almighty. <clears throat> uh, or, as in our text, uh, God of Abraham, God of Jacob. <clears throat> the other term is Yahweh, uh, which in, in our translations is often, it usually appears as Lord, all capitalized. I don't know why they decided to do it that way, because there's another word, Adonai, which often modifies Elohim. Adonai Elohim. And Adonai just is, is, a, is a generic term for uh, uh, like a master or a, uh, you know, a Lord. And so <laughs> you see Lord God, but it's not all capitalized. That's Adonai Elohim. If you see Lord all capitalized, it's Yahweh. These are different names used for different purposes. It's important to underline that. And I, I think one of the reasons we do that is that in the, in the 19th century, there was uh, this theory that emerged uh, it, during, uh, about around these two names. So scholars kind of noted that there are sections of the Pentateuch where Elohim is more used and sections of it where Yahweh is more used. And what, what that led to was this theory that the uh, Pentateuch is actually two different books about two different gods. There's this God, El, and there's a God, Yahweh. And uh, the Hebrews kind of, whenever they were putting the Bible together, whenever they're putting the Pentateuch together, uh, they, they sort of took these two books and like kind of put them all together. So therefore, the, the sections that where Elohim appears are from the Elohim text. And the part where Yahweh appears is from the Yahweh text. By the way, Yahweh, uh, nobody really knows how to pronounce Yahweh. An alternative pronunciation of it is Jehovah. So you're familiar probably with that, that word Jehovah. So it's the same thing, Yahweh, Jehovah. <clears throat> um, so there, there were all these um, intricate theories about how these two texts were put together. Uh, and you can, uh, honestly, all through the 20th century, up until the 1970s, this was treated as absolute historical fact. That the, the, the Old Testament does not, the Pentateuch does not have a single author, but that it's a collection of all these different texts that were kind of cobbled together to form a narrative. I, I, I want to tell you that because it's, it's a very common theory. You can go and watch like a, a documentary from the 60s on the Bible, and the, the guys that are talking, they'll just, they'll talk like it's absolutely 100% proven true. Like they've gone back and seen them doing this, putting these texts together. The way they talk about it with such certainty, it's stunning. And if, if you had gone into like some sort of academic environment in the 1960s and you said, I think the Pentateuch was written by Moses, by one author, everyone would have just <laughs> laughed you out of the building. Now, what happened in the 1970s? People pointed out that no one has ever been able to kind of uh, figure out how these divisions make. You've got texts like the one today where Elohim and Jehovah or Elohim and Yahweh appear in very close proximity to each other. Like, did they take one sentence from this text and then the next sentence was from Yahweh and the next from, it doesn't make any sense. The theory completely collapsed. It's no longer, uh, it's no longer treated as, as proof. In fact, it's un, most people would say that it's been disproven. 
I just want to tell you that because you'll read all the time these scholarly theories about the Bible that are meant to like, that have the effect of undermining our trust in the scriptures. And they will be talked about and treated with this absolute certainty. The scholars will talk about them like, we have definitively proven something that completely undermines your faith. Okay, wait 20 years and they'll be saying the exact opposite. All right, that there is an integrity. Scholars now agree that this, uh, this book has, the, the first five books of the Bible were written by a, a single author or group of authors. That's kind of how they would phrase it. That it's, it's the work of a, of a single purpose and not multiple texts put all together like that. Anyway, I just, I, you, you, if you spend any time uh, reading about the Old Testament, you will hear people talking about this. Still to this day, there are a lot of people that treat this theory as if it were completely true, proven true. Now, what is the reason behind these different names? If it's not these two different documents that have been brought together, why does Moses, the author of this text, sometimes say Elohim and sometimes say Yahweh? Well, Elohim or El is a generic name for God. It's, it's, it's sort of like a description of the power that exists beyond us and above us, which all peoples everywhere acknowledge. The Bible tells us that every person has an innate knowledge just by being created, that God exists and is real. And so when, when you see uh, any, any sort of, um, in these passages that have Elohim in it, it's generally used as this sort of generic description. The, way, the best way I can, I can think of it is uh, man versus uh, Stephen. Me, Stephen. So man is a, a sort of generic description that encompasses like a category of things, right? So you can talk about, uh, when you talk about me, you can use that generic word. You can say that man. And, and also it, that, that man permits a lot of modifiers, right? That man up there, you know, the man in the sweater, uh, the man preaching. So Elohim in the, in, the Testament is, in, the, in the Old Testament is accompanied all the time by these things that modify it. God Almighty, the God of J. Abraham, specifying, specifying what they mean by that. <clears throat> now, uh, when, God, when God first makes himself known to Moses here in this passage, that's what he calls himself. He says, Elohim, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Now, Moses asks him a question. And here's where we get into uh, Yahweh. He says, uh, when, when he arrives and tells them that God, God sent me, and the Israelites ask, uh, who, what is the name of God that sent you? Moses asked, what should I say? Now, <clears throat> when I was researching this passage this week, I want to say that this little section here, there is more written about Exodus 3, 13, and 14 than I think almost any passage in the entire Bible. The amount of ink that has been spilled talking about this is staggering. So much. Why does Moses ask this question? It doesn't... Uh, if you notice, when he actually goes later to uh, the Israelites, they don't ask him this. <laughs> no one asks him what, what the name of God is. Uh, so what is the purpose of this? Well, I, I think in uh, the way that the church has often understood this historically is that God has taken on many different names across all cultures. All cultures acknowledge in some way that God is real and exists. And all of them, have specified him 
someday. They've limited him by applying a title to him. They've recreated God in their image. They've described him in ways that came out of their own imagination. What Moses is asking for is how does God describe himself? How does God understand himself? What he says is, I am who I am. That is a, a long version of Yahweh. Then he says, I am, which is a longer version of Yahweh, but still, uh, but shorter than the other one. And then he specifies his name as Yahweh. Something is being communicated to us by this name. God has a name that is known only to his people. It's not a public name. The public name is Elohim. The name for Israel is Yahweh. What does that name tell them? The gods of the ancient world uh, were a part of the material existence of the world itself. They existed in a sort of continuity with man. They were sort of elevated versions of man. The gods could kind of come down to man and man could rise up to God. In, in the ancient world, men were always becoming gods. Great kings ended up being worshipped as gods. This continued all through. Uh, uh, this is the pagan understanding. A, a sort of oneness between the world and gods. We would call it pantheism. It's the sort of instinctive way to understand God. That he exists in a continuity with us. Now when God makes himself known, what he is teaching is theology with his name. His name is information about him. What he's doing is specifying himself from the understanding of gods that existed at that time. I am who I am is a statement of God's independence and existence in himself. God is declaring that though all creatures are dependent on him, all that has been made Owe its existence to him. He alone has an independent self-existence which is owed to no one. He exists outside of man and independent from man. Nothing man can do can affect God in any way. Nothing man can do can change him. He is who he is. It's an assertion of his independence, his separation, what we can call the distinction that is made between the creator and the creation. They are distinct and separate, unmixed with each other. This is a conception of God that is wholly new, never occurred in the history of the world to this moment. The world is created by God. He is not dependent on it. Now, why? So what? Why, why, would, why would the Israelites need to know that? What could it provide for them? This is, this is what it means. This is for us. We are God's people, just like the Israelites. This information is for us. We need to know God as Yahweh, God as the self-existent one. What does it mean for you that God exists independent of his creation? 
only one who is independent can enter into relationship with man. If you are going to have a relationship between two beings, they must be distinct from each other. You cannot have relationship with yourself, with something that is a part of you. Because God is independent of the world, he can come and love the world. He can come and do things in the world. He can act in it. It is this independence that enables God to descend to us, make himself known to us, and covenant with us, deliver promises to us, and fulfill them in his love. Yahweh is the name of the covenant God. So what, what, what's communicating? When Moses goes and tells the Israelites, Yahweh sent me, I am sent me. It's a name of relationship for Israel alone. God has descended to love, to reveal himself, and to draw his people into relationship with him. That's the meaning of the name. Well, don't worry. I know I'm only my first point in. The next two are, 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 are brief. Again, I'm, I'm violating all the rules of preaching here. So our thesis, God's name is revealed to those that he intends to take into relationship with himself. And those that God intends to take relationship with himself are those that he loves, the objects of his special covenant love Israel. And if God loves, then God will do good. Then God will bless. And if God will do good to a people that are oppressed and in slavery, then what he intends to do is liberate. And not just free them from the bonds of slavery, but to bring them into something, out of something and into something. From death to life, out of Egypt into the promised land. This is the intention that God has. A release from oppression and bondage established in the land. Now, in the New Testament, one of the primary metaphors by which we understand what God does in Jesus is taken from this event, from this redemption. The metaphor of slavery, for being liberated it, liberated from it. That whole mental world of ideas and imageries is taken from this. God does this so that in the fullness of time, when Jesus comes, we may understand what Jesus does, what is accomplished in the death and resurrection of Jesus. Are you under bondage? You were. Are you liberated in the gospel? If you belong to Jesus, then you are not just freed from sin, but raised to new life. That is the meaning of the resurrection. Now, how does God do this? What is God's method? I told you two and three would be faster, right? What is God's method? Acts, works of divine power. Now, there's a, I don't know if you noticed this in the text. There's a, a curious moment here. When, when uh, Moses is, goes to, uh, to the Israelites, what he's supposed to do is he takes the elders with him. He's supposed to go to Pharaoh. This is what God instructs him to do. Go to Pharaoh and say, uh, 
Will you let us go out for a couple days so that we can offer sacrifices to God? Okay, now he's not supposed to go and tell Pharaoh, set us free from slavery, you tyrant. No, it's just, can we go out for a couple days and make sacrifices? Now, why does God tell him that? Is God like, and then when you're out there, you're going to sneak away. (laughs) I don't think so. I don't think that's what's happening. I think what's going on uh, is this. It's, it's hard to explain this precisely, but uh, they, uh, God has Moses make this small, minor request to the Pharaoh. It's, it's a small thing. Just let us, give us a couple days off so that we can go sacrifice to our gods. Now, God knows that Pharaoh is going to say no to that. And so the reason he makes the request so small is so that we can draw a contrast between what Moses initially asked for and what ultimately, by the divine power of God, comes to pass. Because by the end of this, Pharaoh will go from having said no to a couple days off to freely liberating the people in such a manner that they actually plunder the Egyptians as though they were a conquering army. They are freely pillaging the nation that holds them in slavery. Who does this? The people, the people are passive. They uh, sit in slavery. They do not lift a finger this whole time. What redeems them is God's acts of power. God's name made known to them draws them into relationship. God's intention as a result of that relationship is liberation, blessing. The method by which he does that is acts of unmistakable power. That's our text. Can you see Can you see how it works into the gospel and into our lives? Can we see how this is used? We are the ones in bondage and slavery. We are the one whom God comes to passively. We we are passive. When you were dead, dead in transgressions and sins, Paul says in Ephesians, God made you alive. The work of divine power in Jesus Christ, brought by the Spirit into your life. This is the gospel. Liberation from all that enslaves you, brought into new life. Finally completed in the fullness of time when Christ returns, sin vanishes forevermore, and we are with him forever. Amen? Let's pray. Thank you for listening to the weekly teaching podcast of the chapel at Pasadena. We are a church on a mission to revive believers, reach friends, and reflect Christ. If you would like more information about our church, visit www.chapelpasadena.com or email us at info at chapelpasadena.com.